All right, Jesse, last week's manipulated killer was completely tragic. What's the story this week? After a horrifying double murder, the family suspects that they know who may be responsible. But when the authorities get nowhere, it falls to a young rookie PI to go undercover and catch a killer. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse, welcome back everyone to Love Murder, a podcast about red flags, unheeded warnings, and of course, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please, 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 a love slash murder, a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Also, guys, if you have left a review lately and you haven't gotten stickers, all you have to do is DM us a screenshot or email us a screenshot at lovers at lovemurder.love of your review, and we will be so, 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 so happy to send you the free sticker code. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. If you haven't already, I, we've seen so many more reviews than we've sent out stickers for. So we just want to make sure everyone gets our thank you. So please, please, please do that today. So Andy, this week is a total doozy and it comes to us as the best cases do from one of our amazing lovers, aka listeners, Leah R. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if like lovers are a thing that I'm not making work, but I'm really trying hard to. Yeah, it might well, be my my personal fetch over here. I was just literally <laughs> going to say, stop trying to make fetch. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyways, I'm going to keep doing it, lovers. That's what I'm calling you guys. So you can tell me whether you love it or you hate it, but I'll probably keep doing it. Anyway, this case comes from Leah, who... Thank you. Thank you so much, Leah. First of all, this is a really, really incredible story. But also, Leah always sends books that have audibles with them too. And I can just tell you guys that if you have a case that you want covered and you also have a book or an audio book that I could listen to, it will go boop, top of the list for sure. Well, we know the way to your heart. Uh Uh-huh. It's books and audio books. I am hashtag book nerd. (laughs) And speaking of listener recommendations, I ended up getting on the Kissel brother story very fast after we had a couple recommendations about it. And so one of the people that recommended it, Nancy didn't get a chance to tell us what kind of shout out she wanted when we did the case. So Andy, I'm going to throw it to you with what Nancy was hoping we would say. Nancy at Sleepless in CA, quote, I love Love Murder Pod almost as much as my boyfriend, Ian. I listen to every episode and you ladies do amazing deep dive research and no annoying chatter. JK, Ian, I do love you. End quote. (laughs) We wish you you. and Ian nothing but the best. Yes, all love and no murder. So on, on those happy listener notes, let's jump right into the case today. It wasn't love at first sight, Mm, not in the slightest, when the couple met in 1980 Houston, Texas. 
when David West was introduced to Cindy Campbell Ray by her sister on the campus of University of St. Thomas, he was intrigued, but not impressed. Later, he would say that he could tell she didn't know dick about makeup. He found the splotches of rouge and fake eyelashes a turnoff. So was her curvy figure. But still, there was something here. The mystery woman had huge, wide eyes that were alluring and exotic. She had a full mouth and a straight nose. Cindy seemed shy, hiding behind greasy chestnut-colored hair and speaking so softly that David had to ask her to speak up several times. Yes, there was definitely something. Cindy was a work of art trapped in a block of clay, he thought. Uh, yeah, guys, so the sources that I'm using today are Cold Kill by Jack Olson, Daddy's Girl by Clifford Irving, and I also watched an episode of Snapped from the 2020 season. And just so you guys know, I want to give a trigger warning. There are some short descriptions of child abuse and child sexual abuse. I will give you a heads up when that is going to occur. Thank you. You're welcome. So both of these books definitely were preoccupied with the way David thought of Cindy. It's really interesting. They're like in his brain. Yes. And he did interviews with both authors, but definitely he talked a lot to Jack Olson. So some of these thoughts are direct from David West and his I mean, you're not going to like him, guys. I got to tell you this. I hate to spoil it right away. But the way he talks about Cindy is a little off-putting. And both books made a lot of hay about Cindy's weight, which we're not going to get into. Insofar as, like, it comes up, it'll only be because of David's thought process. Because lover or hater, I think it's just mean-spirited, tacky, and uninteresting to talk about other people's bodies. So we're just not going to do it. And probably irrelevant. And completely irrelevant. I, it came up so much in both books that I was shocked. I was like, why is this necessary for, for us to understand the crime? So yes, irrelevant. So other than, you know, some perspective from David's perspective that kind of show how he treated Cindy, we are going to try to stay away from that. And speaking of it, we're launching right back into his perspective here. So on their second meeting, he told her, you could be real pretty. You could be a very attractive person. You'd need oh? to just lose some weight, start dressing decently, straighten out your posture. With a little less makeup, you could be a knockout. Okay. I like already want to bitch slap him. Yeah. And shockingly, Cindy didn't slap him. I mean, I would have too. She just smiled sweetly and he definitely felt a huge amount of attraction towards her because she was just going along with this, you know? Yeah. He really thought like this could be some dream girl project of his. David was pleasantly surprised when Cindy called him at his bar job a few days later and asked him on a date. He still wasn't sure if it was going to be a love match, but he was flattered and he agreed to the date. When Cindy hung up the phone, her sister Jamie, who had had the misfortune to go out with David West herself once or twice, asked why on God's green earth would she do such a thing? David's a pig, she said. He's gross. Cindy agreed, and she said he looked like a dog. But she said that that's what she liked about him. He had a dog-like quality. He'll be easy to train. He seems like somebody that will do anything you tell them to do, Cindy smiled. Hmm. 
So these two are playing a dangerous game. Yeah. Yeah, they both think that they're in control here. Within weeks, Cindy had moved into David's dilapidated Montrose home and the die was cast. This union of two truly deplorable people would bring about betrayals aplenty and kill two people in the most cold-blooded and cruel way ever. So yeah, David and Cindy made an explosively bad combination, both as a couple for each other, but it also rippled out to everyone around them. They're like, you know, that couple, that couple that's just so toxic that they spread it around. Mm -hmm. So this is definitely them. When Cindy initially moved in, their relationship was not yet romantic or sexual. Along with having this Pygmalion complex of wanting to change and improve women, David also had a white knight complex. He believed himself to be a protector of women. Yeah, and he loved to tell Cindy stories about beating up men who are publicly mistreating their girlfriends. So he is definitely that not-so-nice guy who thinks he's a nice guy. Yep. So when Cindy complained that her family was mistreating her and refused to give her a place to stay or help her with transportation to campus, David offered to let her stay at his house rent-free and that he'd be more than happy to give her lifts. Jamie, Cindy's younger sister, was surprised at the new arrangement. She herself had dumped David after he called their beloved Mexican maid, Maria, an ethnic slur. Oh, my goodness. I know. This guy is trash. So, (sighs) Jamie found David misogynistic, racist, and just generally gross. And she was really surprised that her sister was moving in with him because she didn't really seem to like him either. She's like, yeah, he looks like a pig. He looks like a dog. He's not that attractive. I'm not attracted to him. But Jamie wasn't like exactly feeling protective over her sister because at this point, Cindy, who's the third of fourth four girls, had been like a nightmare kid, like a total nightmare kid. And Cindy refused to get her driver's license, even though her parents were like, we'll buy you a Buick. They like even bought her a car. They're like, we're, we're just trying to get you to be independent. And she refused to learn how to drive. So Jamie was tasked with taking her sister to campus. And the reason why Cindy later said that, you know, my parents aren't helping me out anymore. My family's not helping me out is because Cindy was doing insane things. Like, while Jamie's trying to get her to school, Cindy was throwing lit cigarette butts at Jamie while she's driving and Mm. even once grabbed the steering wheel and tried to crash the car to the point where Jamie was so stressed out. She was like, Mom and Dad, I cannot take her anymore. You cannot make me do this because it's scary. Yeah. Well, Cindy had always been a problem child and she had caused the Campbell parents plenty of distress over the years. So this was nothing new. Cindy, like I said, was the third and Jamie the fourth of four girls born to Jim and Virginia Campbell. Jim was born in Tennessee during the Great Depression and eventually worked his way up to becoming a well-respected attorney in Houston, Texas. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jim met his wife, Virginia, on a blind date in Los Angeles in 1948 after serving in World War II. Whoa. Doesn't that seem like a, it's a total vibe. 1948 LA. Crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. Jim was attending UCLA as an undergrad, and Virginia was working as a legal secretary. The strapping student and raven-haired beauty hit it off, and they were married shortly thereafter. Jim went to law school, and after graduation in 1952, the couple settled in Houston, Texas, and had their four girls, Michelle, Betty Ann, and of course, Cindy and baby Jamie. 
In fact, Jim's, of course, full name was James. And so he had been saving like the junior for his son. Yeah. (laughs) When they got to four girls, they were like, we're done. And this girl's name is Jamie. Love it. I love (laughs) it. Jim became a formidable and successful attorney, so good that his opponents, who mostly represented insurance companies, called him Jim the Snake or Dirty Jim, which in general, I would say they're not nice names, but I feel like when you're an attorney, like maybe you want like a dirty name like that just shows that you're good and you get like stuff for your clients, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Virginia was his lifelong legal secretary and office manager, and she only took time off to give birth to their four kids. Whoa. Yeah. They were like the original power couple, man, going into work every day together forever. The couple had a close circle of longtime friends, and they loved to travel together. They especially loved taking trips to Lake Tahoe and Las Vegas, where it was reported that Jim was a talented and disciplined gambler. Like, apparently he was smart enough to do really, really well at gambling, but he always only spent at exactly the amount that he said he was going to. And I love that anymore. That's so my vibe. Yeah, it's just responsible. Like gambling can be fun if you're responsible. It's only when you're like down and you just keep piling on that it gets dangerous. You Depressing know? as fuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they adored their daughters and they treated them to lavish vacations like, you know, beach vacations and cruises. And they had several trips to Disneyland and Disney World. And they even outfitted their garage with a soda fountain so the girls could entertain friends at home. Okay, that's so cute. So cute. The family was definitely a close-knit and happy one, all except Cindy, Uh who, despite being a talented artist and singer, was the black sheep of the family. She was prone to streaks of cruelty and emotional outbursts that left the other sisters perplexed and bullied. Oh, no. Yeah, Jamie reported that they had to share a room for a while and she would just terrify her. She would just be like, did you hear that? That's a ghost. They're coming to get you. Yeah, like night after night would pull pranks to like freak her out until like the poor little girl had like practically an anxiety disorder, you know? Oh, my God. Cindy's tantrums and rebellion went beyond the usual teenage stuff. And it was both stressful, but kind of a relief, especially for Jamie, When Cindy dropped out of high school at 17 years old and ran away, she met a 24-year-old hitchhiker named Michael Ray in 1973. Whoa. Yeah. So I think her parents obviously weren't happy about this development, but like without her in the house, there was a lot less stress. Okay. So Cindy's on a journey right now, and she ended up getting pregnant with this guy, Michael Ray. Whoa. So they got married. Yeah. Whoa. Mm-hmm. And they had their firstborn son, Michael, when she was only 18. And they had a little brother for Michael named Matthew only like a year and a half later. Whoa. Okay. That's a huge life change. Huge life change. And her parents were actually really excited about this. They felt like maybe children was what she needed. Would do her good, yeah. Yeah, it would ground her. It would give her something like worth living for, you know? So they were actually very, very supportive about this. And when she had their second child, they were like, Cindy, come home, babe. Like, we'll help you raise these two little guys. Like, we're really happy to be there for you. And so at first they move in with the Campbells, the whole family, and the mom and dad help take care of the little boys. And then for a little while, they moved into their own apartment. But... I guess that Michael was working on this Galveston boat. He was like some type of loading worker thing on this boat. And 
he said later that he doesn't even know what happened. Like he had to be on this boat for certain journeys. So he was kind of away from the home a little bit. Okay. And one day he came home and Cindy was like, I know you've been cheating on me and my father's here and he's going to help me get a divorce. And we're kicking you out of this apartment and I'm getting full custody of the kids and you have no say in this. And Michael was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm definitely not cheating. I don't know what's going on. I thought we were happy. And, but he was, you know, very intimidated by her father, who was a very prominent attorney. And he also worked in a job where he was on a boat, you know, 10 out of 14 days of, you know, two weeks or whatever. So he was like, I don't really see how I can get any sort of custody, you know? Yeah. So basically at this point, Cindy and her kids moved in with her parents and Cindy ended up getting remarried to another guy, leaving for a while, coming back after that marriage didn't work out. So the only constant in these two little boys' life was actually Jim and Virginia, who even though they were their grandparents, the little boys called them mama and papa. That makes sense. And were they so excited to have two boys in the house? Yes, it's so funny. They had four girls, yeah. and now they have this chance of having two little sons, yeah. basically, yeah. you know? So, yeah, it wasn't a hardship for them at all. They loved having the boys there. And I think that they set some boundaries around Cindy. I mean, they called Cindy Cindy. They didn't call her mom, you know? So it seemed like while they never formally adopted the boys, it was pretty concrete that the grandparents were more the parental figures here. Yeah, okay. So after her second marriage collapsed, Cindy ends up basically back in Houston, back living with her parents and her sons again. And she takes her GED and she ends up starting school with her little sister, which is where she ends up meeting David. Okay. So David West seemed like a genuinely complicated guy. I mean, from what I told you already, obviously not a good guy, but he thought he was. And then that's what's complicated about David is that He was this ex-Marine who attended University of Houston for a little while on the GI Bill, who was uncommonly close to his mother, Cecilia. And Cecilia was a former set designer for theater. But he was a little emotionally closed off from his introverted engineer father, Duval West. And he really viewed himself as a protector of the weak and somebody who would literally give you the shirt off of his back. Okay. But is that still the, like, knight mentality? Yes, it's definitely this white knight mentality. Like everything that he said to Cindy and that he said he said to Cindy because that was from his mouth to author Jack Olson is gross. But I think that he genuinely believed that he was helping her or he would help other women. And he was the kind of guy who gets like aggressive about opening a door for you and because he wants to be that guy. But then he's like, well, you didn't say thank you, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's like you're not actually doing things out of like the kindness of your heart because when you do things out of the kindness of your heart, you don't expect anything back. 100%. Even a thank you. Like it doesn't matter. Exactly. Exactly. And like he was generous. His mom talked about how the house that he lived in that Cindy moved into a couple times was basically kind of like an apartment complex he had bought. And he bought it with an inheritance that he got from an aunt who passed away. And so his mom helped him buy this place with his inheritance. And she was like, okay, now you need to fix the place up and rent out the other units. And this is like how you'll have income. 
And instead, he had friends who were coming back from the military that maybe had PTSD or having trouble getting back into society. And he gave them the apartments for free. Okay. So it's, it is this like complicated thing where he's not a good guy, but sometimes he, he acts like a good guy and that's what makes him so complicated. And did he expect anything from those people or? No, okay. not at all. Okay. So he does, I, I don't know, it's weird. That is complicated because it does seem like that's a genuine. Genuinely a nice thing to do for people coming back from potentially seeing combat and getting fucked up about it. You but know? it's also something that he can like relate to a little bit. So it's exactly. You know. Yeah. He had been in the military and seen some really screwed up things, not exactly combat, but he like helped out at this like terrible train wreck that happened in Morocco that ended up killing like 200 people or something. Whoa. So he had seen some crazy shit in his life. So he he had his own amount of PTSD, I think, yeah. as well, you know? Okay. So when Cindy moved into his two-bedroom unit, he was very clearly platonic with her. She made it, she made it clear, like, hey, if you make the moves on me, I'm freaking out of here. And he was like, no, I definitely won't. Like, if anything ever happens between us, it'll be because you choose it and you want it. And they ended up just really connecting. David loved bragging of his violent military and civilian experiences. Like he kind of liked fighting. Like he would like, he would pick fights in bars with guys, like if they were hitting on girls or something like he, it was that, that again, that good guy, bad guy thing where he thinks he is being a protector where he's kind of just being an asshole and picking fights, you know? I I have a question. Yeah. Was his fist a weapon? (laughs) Are we back at Cod Air again? Have we circled all the way back? If you are listening at home and you want to play the love murder drinking game, every time Andy sneaks in a comment about a Nick Cage movie, you have to take a shot. <laughs> Did he accidentally beat someone to death outside a bar with his with no. his with hand, his- which is a weapon, a legal it's weapon, a legal weapon? Yes, registered, <laughs> registered weapon. No, David will get into some trouble with the law later, but it is not because he was con aired. Okay, okay. (laughs) Yes. So Cindy later remarked to Jamie that she liked David's aggressive streak. She said he'd be good for beating people up if I needed him to. So basically, David thinks he's on top. Cindy thinks she's on top. It's a really interesting dynamic. I can see how it's going to be toxic. Yes. Shout out. And for his part, David discovered that the two had more in common than he thought. He believed that they were both sensitive, imaginative, and witty. They both valued romantic love over no string sex. And they both felt kind of victimized in life and they commiserated about how everything was unfair. So after he gained her trust, he began his master plan of molding her into his perfect woman. From the book Cold Kill by Jack Olson, here's how he did it. David taught her a set of basic exercises, leg raises, side bends, trunk twisters, and squats, and beat time as she creaked through them morning and night. He introduced her to his Marine Corps diet, 
no starches, no grease, no sweets, no fats, just V8 in skim milk, lean meat, fish, chicken, and greens. Oh, yeah. He taught her how to do her face, how to get into a car, how to hold a cigarette. He lectured her on posture, made her balance a book on her head, and walked across the room. So it's 1950? It's my fair lady over here is what he's doing. Yeah. He showered her with unconditional positive regard and ordered her to lighten up on herself. Cindy, he said, can't you see what you're doing? These other people, your parents, your sisters, to hell with them. You're letting them do a number on you. Stand up for yourself. The only reason you're a victim is because you allow it. Don't accept anything unquestioningly and don't allow anybody to do your thinking for you. He paused for effect. Not even me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So through this regimen, Cindy did slim down and the two started spending even more time together. And as that happened, David's thoughts turned more romantic and more desirous of Cindy as a woman. And these feelings intensified when David brought Cindy home to his usually hard-to-please mother, Cecilia. And Cecilia absolutely became taken with Cindy. She found Cindy to be shy and sweet and damaged and like a child who needed love. She began to get the feeling that something bad had happened to Cindy and she wanted to be there for her to provide her the parental love and support that she was so clearly lacking. So soon Cindy began to confide in both David and Cecilia that she had suffered abuse as a child. So none of this stuff is like that bad, but this is, we're going to start touching on the childhood abuse. So she claimed that her first memory was her mother, Virginia, tripping her as she toddled as a 15-month-old. She said she was learning how to walk, basically, or getting steady on her feet. And she, her first memory is her mother sticking out her foot to trip her on purpose. Whoa. Yeah. And she also said that when she was three, she remembered that the family had been at a lake and they were all like swimming in the shallow end of this lake. And little Cindy stepped into like a divot, like a hole in the lake that was just a little too deep for her. And she was struggling and going under and splashing in, trying to get her mother's attention. And she said that she saw her mother from the shore and her mother was just looking at her and not going to help her, like like as if she wanted her to die. Oh, no. Yeah. So Cecilia was horrified. I mean, she was like, what kind of mother would do these things? Obviously, you know. By early 1981, Cindy and David had been living together for just over three months. Cindy had lost over 30 pounds and David was smitten with what he called his project. Did he actually call her his project? Yes, he joked to friends that he had created a great technique. Quote, if you can't attract a beautiful woman, create one. Wow. You knew I was going to hate this. Yikes on a bike, dude. Wow. So Cindy seemed to be responding romantically with him as well. And shortly thereafter, their relationship was consummated. Now, we get everything from David's perspective because Cindy did not speak to these authors. So... I mean, I'm saying apparently she somehow decided to find this guy attractive and they started sleeping together, but I have no idea what she was actually thinking, you know? Yeah, but also if you're being, I mean, this is like some sort of form of being groomed, you know? So if you're like this guy's essentially telling you the only way that he's going to find you attractive, you probably start to think maybe this is the only way that other people could find me attractive. 
I should. Yes. And he was doing that like love bombing almost technique being like, but I love you and I care about you and I think you're worthwhile. And like, but this is how you can get your own self-respect back is by doing these things. Not for me, but for yourself. But I see, I see the beautiful person inside of you and I'm the only one, you know? I'm sure he can also teach her how to have sex. Ew. Oh, I know. It's like not cool. Yeah, and speaking of, their sex life was a little off. According to David, Cindy was averse to sexual intercourse and could only engage if she adopted the personality of a little girl and referred to David as daddy. Oh, no. Yeah. That's a red flag. So... Well, that was a red flag. It wasn't a deal breaker for David, who was just as pleased as Punch to have landed his dream girl. He proudly announced to his mother that he and Cindy were a serious item. He believed that they were heading towards marriage. <sighs> Through conversations with her potential future daughter-in-law, Cecilia discovered even more atrocities that the Campbells had inflicted upon baby Cindy. So yeah, more trigger warnings here. As a small child, Cindy claimed her mother would lock her in a closet for hours while she took her sisters on lavish shopping trips and showered them with presents. Cindy said she was beaten for soiling herself while potty training and was chained to the toilet for several hours at a time. Oh, this is like real dark shit. This is like a child called it stuff. After months of friendship, Cindy finally revealed the darkest horror of her childhood to her boyfriend and his mother. Her father, the well-respected attorney, Jim Campbell, had been raping Cindy since she was 12 years old. David felt sick, and suddenly he thought of Cindy's proclivities in bed, and that, of course, made sense to him at this point. He and his mother considered going to the police, but Cindy begged them not to. And they also feared going against a powerful attorney, of course. They kind of came to the conclusion that Cindy was safe now. She was out of her parents' grasp. They could keep her safe. So, like, if Cindy wanted to put it in the past and move forward, they would too. By the spring of 1981, David was completely under Cindy's spell. Cindy looked beautiful and was completely dependent on him. And that was like exactly what he wanted. He wanted to turn her into his perfect woman, what he deemed perfect was. But he also wanted a woman that was completely dependent on him. It was like the perfect culmination of his Pygmalion and White Knight fantasies. Yep. He also, I think like as devastated as he was that she had suffered this terrible childhood abuse, there was definitely some part of him that liked being her protector, that liked the fact that he could now be in a position to protect her from her terrible family, you know? Yeah. Although David and Cecilia were both starting to pick up on some inconsistencies with Cindy's stories. First, she claimed her oldest son was actually her father's child, but David couldn't make the dates match up to see how that was possible. So then she switched it to saying that the younger boy was her father's, but then again, sometimes it was both. Some of her wild ah. allegations of abuse began to contradict themselves, or she would go so far in her claims that they seemed like pure fiction. And no one in her family had any idea she was saying these Nobody. things? Nobody. Okay, okay. Yeah, and 
all of the other sisters were like, no, our parents were absolutely lovely. She okay. had a lovely upbringing. She was the issue. But how are you supposed to know if you're only hanging out with Cindy and... They have no idea. Yeah. I mean, David and Cecilia 100% believed everything she said. They just noticed later that sometimes she would tell the same story, but details would be different. And they picked up on it, but they also were very deeply sympathetic towards her. And though they kind of compared notes every once in a while, which was like, hey, that's weird that she said this and then she changed her story. They were like, but she is deeply traumatized. I mean, she is coming to us from this PTSD and fog of trauma position. Like we can't expect her to get all the details right all the time when of she's course. talking about something that's so horrifying. And he has friends who have severe PTSD. So he yeah. probably strikes a chord with him as well. Exactly. There was just this feeling of we have to protect her. And also it's, I think, a very good mindset to have to believe victims, you know, that should be the default. So after six months of the relationship, David's inheritance from his aunt was dwindling. So both lovers dropped out of college and David got a job as an iron workers helper, which, oh my God, this job sounds like my worst nightmare <laughs> In this, it's so scary. In this position, it was, uh, the iron working was being done on high-rise buildings. Okay. Yeah, he's one of those guys that takes an open-air <laughs> elevator 70 stories up every single day and works on a four-inch steel beam doing iron work. But he's strapped in. Yeah, so they had some sort of safety harnesses, but they weren't, I don't know whether, you know, human nature, people don't always use them correctly or what happened or, you know, there's obviously like you have to move the carabiner over to get yeah. to like the next section of the building. Within his first two weeks of working at this job, two people had died from falling and one other person was in a critical condition because of it. Did he make some bread? Yeah, he was making like a shite ton of money. I mean, this is, we're talking 1980 and he was making nearly $20 an hour. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So this like, was no. <laughs> still not enough. Oh my God. It sounds terrible. Those I'm buildings. not even like super afraid of heights and that sounds like shit my pants scary. Yeah. No. And those people building those high rises can pay more. Yes. They should pay more. Jeez Louise. I hope they do now. Ugh. Yeah. So Cindy also briefly got a job. She worked as a security guard, but she quit like within a few weeks of having this job. She claimed to David that her bosses and coworkers were coming on to her. I figured it was going to be something like that. Yes. And that she was like not going to live with that sort of harassment. So eventually she decided that instead she was going to become a stand-up comedian. Excuse was me? Yep. That's what she decided her next career move. And so where she got this idea was that randomly David had been a part of the Houston comedy scene. He had been a part of this like two man comedy group where the other guy like told jokes and David did sound effects. Oh my God. It's like you and me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we both tell the jokes, but you're definitely more the sound effects person. <laughs> Whiz, bang, pop. 
Yeah, exactly. I love it. I love it. You're the best co-host in the world. But yeah, so he had been part of this and that was like his shtick. And so he brought Cindy around this group and she came to like see him perform. And she's like, I could do this. I'm going to get up there. I'm going to be a female comedian. And of course, we're talking the 80s. So there weren't that many female comedians. And she was like, I really want to go for this. So yeah, basically she's like, I think I could do this. And David was not supportive at all. Like he was not even a little bit. I don't think he wanted her on stage. I mean, I think this shows his controlling side. He felt like men would be looking at her, that this community of comics was sleazy. He felt like they would all be coming on to her, that he didn't want her to work in nightlife. Was she funny? Oh, no, she was terrible. Okay, well then, also that. (laughs) (laughs) She was absolutely terrible. And that was his other concern. He was like, Cindy, you're not going to be good at this. And she actually wasn't. Like, this would be a totally different story if she was amazing and her terrible boyfriend was keeping her down. Of course, Uh, But she was really bad. I mean, Jack Olson interviewed the people at this place that was called the Comics Annex. And they were like, yeah, we gave her a shot because we actually did really want a female comedian on the roster. But, and like, even one of the guys who was a manager at this club tried to like kind of coach her. But she was no marvelous Mrs. Maisel over here. I got to tell you guys, <laughs> not not a, even a little bit. She uh, would like ramble on her set. Then she would start ranting. And when everything went totally off the rails, she would just start like shouting at guys in the audience and being like, you want to fuck me? You want to fuck me? Oh, no. Yeah, I'm sorry I said that, guys. If you just cringed, I want you to know that I cringed too. But that's, <laughs> that's how this act was reported to me. <laughs> That was how it evolved. That's how it evolved or devolved rather. And then what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then what would happen? Would the guys be like, "Uh, Amira's my wife? They were just so uncomfortable that nobody said anything until like somebody forced Cindy to get off the stage or she just like stormed off the stage. Yeah. (laughs) They just yanked her off the stage. So of course she and David fought about this. She wanted to keep trying and get better at it. And he was not having it. And he was basically tried to put his foot down and be like, no, I forbid you to, which was not going to fly with Cynthia over here. So basically one day when he's at work, she's like, screw this. And she completely moves out and ghosts him. Like she doesn't call him for like three or four days to tell him that she's even okay. Ah. <sighs> Yeah, so she moved in temporarily with a former art teacher named Gwen Sampson, who had become a close friend. And Cindy told Gwen that she actually hated David. When she leaves, she's like, I hate him. I think he has a pig face. And I was only... Yeah, like, so Gwen was like, why have you been living with him if you hate him so much? And she's like, whatever, I needed a place to stay. So Gwen also did not like David. David had said some really rude things to... Gwen, like he had called her like a cow and all this stuff. So Gwen is very much like, screw this guy. And of course you can stay with me to get out from away from him because he's terrible. But Cindy wasn't a very good fit for Gwen's home. So Gwen had, she was married to a second husband. And so she had her first son from her previous relationship was like in his teens. And then they had another little boy who was younger together. But Cindy was very messy and she was rude and she really didn't get along with Gwen's husband at all. And then to make matters even worse, like she was kind of being weird and flirty with Gwen's 15-year-old son. Stop. 
Yeah. So Gwen was like, this isn't working for us. I love you and I want you to be safe, but this is probably a bad fit. You got to figure out where you're going to go live. And instead of trying to get a new place or get a new job, she moved back in with David at this point. So it only worked out briefly. I mean, this is, we're really starting a part of David and Cindy's relationship where they are back and forth. I mean, they are together. They're not together. This is the toxicity, that couple that just is, cannot get it together, but can't be apart from each other, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So they break up again after this. And Cindy did appeal to her parents that she needed a place to live. So they actually let her move into an apartment. They owned this fourplex. And in it, Cindy's grandmother actually lived in one of the units. And then Cindy was allowed to live in one of the units. And then there was two tenants. Okay. So yeah. So both during this period, David and Cindy tried to date other people. Cindy kept trying to be a comedian and it did not go anywhere. But she did date a couple of guys that she met from the comics annex. And the relationships always ended because she had very bizarre and erratic behavior. Like there was one guy who talked to Jack Olson who discussed the fact that they had been out drinking together. And at first it was like kind of fun and sexy. And then she got drunker and drunker. And then he was trying to take her home. And she's like, no, I want to go to this, this Hyatt hotel where they apparently had a fountain in the lobby. And she was like, I want to wash your feet. Like Mary washed Jesus's feet. Like you're my Jesus. I'm going to wash your feet. And he was like, um, cool. But no, I also don't think that the hotel would appreciate you washing my feet in the, the fountain. So we're going to skip that. I'm going to take you home. You know, you're going to get some sleep. We'll see each other tomorrow. And she got really violent and angry about it. And again, tried to like grab the steering wheel to make him take the exit that would have gone to the hotel. Ooh. And he's like, yeah, this is enough for me. I'm not seeing you anymore. Yeah, so there was a couple stories like that for these guys. Meanwhile, David wasn't faring much better. He had met a young woman at his local pub by attempting to defend her. Essentially, some dude was trying to talk to her at the bar, and David stepped in and was all, like, macho, this guy bothering you, you know? Uh-huh. It was just his total MO. So they ended up dating for just a very short while, but David was controlling and off-putting. She said to author Jack Olson about the relationship, he pawed me a lot, but not lovingly. It was like he held on to me so I couldn't get away. Yeah, pawed. David started dropping in without calling. Another test, you know. I'd say, hey, David, please call first. And then the next day he'd be at the door again. Not cool. Not cool. That is super not cool and yeah. very not attractive. No. He finally decided that I couldn't function without him. He had to open the car door to let me out. If I opened it, it was like I slapped him in the face. He said that I needed him for protection. I thought he desperately needs somebody who needs his help, somebody who's in trouble. And if you're willing to play the part with him, he'll like give you anything you want. I just couldn't relate to that. So I faded away. I mean, I feel like he would have had a really good like, it's the right word. What's it called, Jesse, when you are like a master? Oh, like he would have been into like an S&M type relationship? Yeah. I feel like he would have been really great in an S&M Like he wants to be a dom? Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I, I think that's like really that how he saw himself. Him. Like he could have been like, you don't open the door. I open the door for you. And then I'm going to buy you some Louboutins. <laughs> and like nowadays he could go on the internets and find someone who would be so down for that. 
Yeah, I don't think he had Louboutin money, though, either. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying. Yeah, he definitely wanted that relationship. And even later on, you'll see that there's some questions that come up about who was really in control in this relationship. Yeah. And even to the end, he thought he was in control, even though he clearly wasn't. Okay. He believed he was in control with Cindy. Okay. And that is why no woman matched up to Cindy. He kept letting her come back or begging for her to come back because he felt that she was beautiful and she was vulnerable and that she allowed him to be this masculine man that he so desperately wanted to be for her, you know? Okay. So around this time, David befriended a 23-year-old former airborne ranger named Wiki Weinstein. Whoa. Who shared his interest in violence, firearms, ammo, and all things military. In fact, in the book, they described Wiki as a Jewish James Dean. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, Wiki's actually pretty cute. Wait, is that short for anything? I have no idea what Wiki stood for, to be honest. They just call him Wiki Weinstein in the book. Okay, that's so intense. Yes, and they literally had a macho dude meet cute because they met in a bar fight. So apparently these British guys were at this pub and they were talking about how Americans are pussies. And David like stepped up to one of the guys and he's like, you want to go with this American? You want to see if I'm a pussy? And he starts like brawling with these two Brits and Wiki Weinstein happened to be in the bar at the same time. And he's like, I'll go with you, bro. And he started like fighting alongside him for no reason. And that's and how they became friends. Who won? I mean, they said they won. <laughs> that's what they told that author Jack Olson. They're like, we kicked those Brits ass. But I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> So at least David has a new best friend here, although it sounds like that they're not going to bring out the best in each other. What would make you say that? <laughs> yeah. Wiki even moved into one of David's apartments. I do not know whether he was paying rent or not. So Cindy was really spinning out at this time. She had an affair with this married guy. And when he tried to end it, she stalked and harassed him so badly that the phone company issued a cease and desist order so she could no longer call him. Whoa. Oh, yeah. It gets way worse, too. She then fashioned a ragdoll to resemble the man's young daughter, splattered it with paint to resemble blood, and hung it from the family's mailbox. Um, there's so many things about that that are nightmarish to me. I mean, chilling to the core. Whoa. And the worst part of this is that when she told this story to Gwen, who I guess this guy had been a friend of Gwen's and that's how she met him, she was like telling it like it was a hilarious joke. She's like, and then I did this and then I did that. And then I I went, I parked like three car lengths away down the street so I could watch how scared he was. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally unhinged. So meanwhile, Cecilia only recently found out that David and Cindy had broken up. She just was like, hey, like David didn't want to admit it to anyone that they broke up. So he didn't tell his mom for a really, really long time. Okay. And when she did find out, she was like, I want to go back and get them together. She's like, David's so miserable without her. Cecilia really genuinely likes Cindy and was like, I think she's just like kind of like this mistreating girl and she needs like a mother figure and I want to be that for her, you know? Yeah, because she thinks she's like abused and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So she was basically told Cindy that she was like in her neighborhood and she wanted to drop by because Cindy, basically, I think her parents 
kind of insinuated that if she took care of this apartment unit, this building, that like someday she would inherit it, you know? Yep. And so Cecilia was going to drop by to talk about like which renovations they could do to the place or how to decorate her new apartment. And Cecilia came into the apartment and she was so horrified at what she saw. First of all, Cindy had adopted a cat and a dog and they were just going to the bathroom on the carpet, like in the house. Oh, no. So there was animal droppings everywhere and this reek of urine. And then also the floor was littered with used maxi pads. Um, yeah. So, so clearly, she's like having a mental breakdown. She is. Yes, okay. that's absolutely true. There was another article I read that suggested that she was definitely having a depressive cycle of bipolar, but we don't know that for sure. She was never diagnosed with it. So I don't want to make any assertions that were not proven, you know, or diagnosed. And that was in an article? Yeah, it was an article later that basically was like, it doesn't take a armchair psychologist to figure out that she had bipolar, but that was literally the only comment I saw wow. in passing. Okay. Yeah. It's hard because both the books I read were published in the 80s. So, you know, obviously there wasn't as much mental health awareness, so they didn't mention it. But it seems pretty clear to you and I that if this is the state of your living situation, that something has broken down. And Cindy herself had abandoned her own hygiene and she was very sickly at this point. She complained to Cecilia that her teeth were loose and her mouth was frequently filling with blood. What? Yeah. So Cecilia said later that she thought she had legit scurvy because she was just eating junk food and no vegetables and no fruits and like basically living off of like gas station food. Oh my God. Wow. Is that how you get scurvy? I don't even know. I think you get scurvy from not having any sort of produce in your life, right? All I what, know is so, that all I know is that citrus heals scurvy. helped it. That's because yeah. of the sailors and the limes yeah. and the grog. Yeah. So by the spring of 1982, Cindy was barely eking by, borrowing money from her parents and living rent-free in their apartment. And by now she is 26 years old, I think, around then. Oh my then. god, still a baby. Yeah. So at this point, Jim Campbell had decided to put his foot down and he told Cindy that she had to go back to school or get a job, but he wasn't going to continue to shell out money and fund her life. She had to like at least prove that she was trying to do something for her future, you know? Okay. So when she knew that her father wasn't going to be at the home, Cindy would go to her parents' house and threaten and scream at Virginia until her mother forked over hundreds of dollars. And this was witnessed by the maid, Maria. Okay. And Maria absolutely hated Cindy. She had been with them for a very, very long time. She lived with them. She lived in an apartment over their garage. Okay. And she had witnessed this child like completely manipulate and use and scare this family. Yep. And so she always had a distaste for Cindy. And around this time, she was actually getting nervous for Virginia because Cindy's threats were becoming more intense. And Virginia seemed genuinely frightened of her. And it's always interesting when it's someone who's not like Maria is not related to them, obviously, and has been yes. kind of seeing it from an outside perspective. 
Exactly. She has that perspective, like that special perspective of being kind of in the family, but kind of on the outside where you can kind of judge situations more clearly than the people do on the inside. Yeah. So she was basically worried about this at this point. And with David, he was still pining for Cindy, even those things with Cindy had gone off the rails. He very much wanted to be the one that got Cindy healthy again. So eventually she did show up on his doorstep and she was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I left you. My life has been shit since I left you. You were the person that kept me healthy and whole. I'm a mess. I am destitute. I'm desperate. And she apparently like collapsed into tears and was like, I have been doing so poorly that I had to go back to my family and count on them for financial support. And my dad would only help me out if I had sex with him. Oh, So she comes back with this huge sob story about how she tried to reconcile with her family and her dad was sexually assaulting her again. Oh. So David was, of course, disgusted, angry, outraged, and all of his protective feelings came back for Cindy. He's like, of course I love you. Of course you can stay with me. Get away from those terrible people. Don't live in their apartment because he knew that Jim was paying the bills at that apartment and it was mm-hmm. theirs. He's like, I'm going to do everything I can to take care of you and make you whole again. And in reality, no such abuse had taken place, of course. It was simply that at this point in time, Cindy no longer had any use for her father if he was alive, if he wasn't going to be giving her money. Yeah. At this point, knowing that she's in his will, he is worth more to her dead than alive. So Cindy starts crying to David about how the abuse had started up again and David's getting riled up. And he basically says, if someone tried to pull the shit with me, I'd fucking kill them, Cindy. And Cindy sees her in and she begins to convince David, her strong, fierce military man protector, that he should kill her parents for her. Wow. So David did agree that Jim needed to die for raping his daughter but he doesn't feel quite right executing her mother. So they begin this conversation, this back and forth about whether it's going to happen, whether it should happen. And Cindy works all the angles. Like first she tried to remind David about how abusive her mother had been. And when he's like, yeah, but her abuse kind of falls short of execution. Yeah, She was like, okay, well, my father's estate will then fall to my mother and she's going to get three or four million dollars. And essentially she doesn't deserve it because you think about how abusive she's been. But also my dad has been sexually assaulting me and he feels guilty about that. So he's keeping me in his will. But if my mom gets all the money, she hates me and has always treated me badly. So she's going to cut me out of the will completely. I'll be left with nothing. She's been tripping her and watching her sink in the water. Yep. And chaining her to toilets and locking her in closets and all of this stuff that she's told David. So David at this point, like she's like, I'll split the money with you. And David's like, I'm not a hired killer. Like if I kill your parents, it's because of the principle of it. It's because they're bad people that don't deserve to live. Yeah. But he still like is not on board with this. He doesn't know if he can pull it off. He doesn't know if morally he thinks it's right. So he asks her for a couple days to decide and he ends up going to Wiki and he doesn't tell Wiki exactly like who he's trying to like 
kill or thinking of killing. But he's like asking him about the morality of killing people. He's asking Wiki if Wiki ever killed anyone in combat. Like, how does it feel to kill somebody? Yeah. And he's asking Wiki for advice about if you were going to try to kill somebody, what would you do and how would you get away with it? Okay. So after that he goes back to Cindy and he's like I don't know I'm still on the fence like I think I could pull it off now that I've talked to Wiki about it but I don't know if I want to do it and Cindy tells David in excruciating detail this story about the first time her father raped her and he's like please don't tell me these details you're making me sick and she just lays it on super thick to the point where he's so disgusted he's like fuck it i'm going to kill him i'm going to kill them both fuck it because your dad is a terrible rapist and your mother protected him and they don't deserve to live if that's the type of human beings they are you know oh it's so crazy that someone can like i mean obviously we don't you made the point that she's a liar about this Right. Already. <laughs> yes. And, you know, it's, I believe she was lying about this. I based on what came up in court and what her all of her sisters said and what Maria said, you know, and people who are very close to the home. It's so scary that you can like make shit up to convince someone to end someone else's life. Like that is so scary. I mean, it is scary. We are subjective individuals. We can never know the objective truth about anything. We only take in what we're told and what we witness ourselves. And we form a a worldview that can be very, very frightening if we are fed the wrong information. Yeah, that's so scary. Mm -hmm. So on the Campbell side, by this point, Virginia's gut instincts were screaming. She knew something was very wrong. Youngest daughter, Jamie, had transferred to a college in Tennessee the year before And apparently Jamie called to figure out like when she was going to come home and what they were going to do for the summer. And she was shocked when Virginia was like, no, please, please, please. Like we will continue to pay for an apartment for you. You have to stay in Tennessee. You can't come home. We don't want you to come home. And Jamie was like, this is really, really weird because she was exceptionally close to her family. And she was the baby of the family. And they had kind of made some plans to do certain activities over the summer together. So she was shocked and she didn't know why. And she didn't see until much later that it had been Virginia's way of saving her life. She was worried that something was going to go down badly in the house and she didn't want Jamie around. Wow. Okay. Also, Maria would later report that one of Cindy's sons had come to her and he was crying because he said that he felt like Cindy was going to kill his mama. Oh, my God. Yeah, apparently the poor little boy had witnessed some altercation where Cindy was screaming that she was going to kill Virginia. Oh, my goodness. So David began planning the Campbell's execution And he wanted it to be a cold kill, hence the name of the book. He also insisted that Cindy accompany him for two reasons. Number one, he wanted her to lead him to her parents' bedroom because he planned to strike at like 3, 3.30 in the morning when they were asleep and shoot them while they're in their beds. Oh, my God. This is a disaster. Yep. So he's like, okay, Cindy, I need you to make sure a window is open so we can get into the house. And then you have to come with me so that I know where I'm going within the house. And also 
he thought that she would be just as guilty as he was if she came with him because later on she couldn't say like, I didn't want him to do this. I, you know, I wasn't a part of it, you know? Yeah. But if he's already having those like doubts about her honesty, then yes, obviously he shouldn't do it. <laughs> Come on, dude. Ugh. So he also purchased a 45 Colt pistol from Wiki the plan is for both Cindy and David to wear head-to-toe dark men's clothing, break in through a window that Cindy would leave unlocked, and for David to obviously shoot the Campbells as they slept. So he bought a white hockey mask, like the Jason masks, Ooh. and spray-painted it black. So scary. scary. And scary, then scary. he gave Cindy a black ski mask, so both of their faces were completely covered. They both wore dark colored military jackets and David had Cindy wear extra socks and men's size eight boots. So if forensics should pick up on the footprints, the police would be looking for two men. Wow, that's smart. That is smart, especially because given the problems in the family and the altercations that, you know, the sisters and Maria had witnessed, yeah, Cindy was going to be the first suspect for sure. Could she walk in them though? I mean, apparently well enough, because she did. On Thursday, June 17th, after a week of training and prep, David decided that the following night, the 18th, would be the night that they would ambush the Campbells in bed at 3.30 in the morning. Cindy is all on board. A day or two prior, she had opened some windows at the house, but had been spotted by Maria. Oh, good. So Maria. Maria thwarted her plan. So she had to go back on the day of the murder to make sure that at least one of the windows was unlocked so they could get into the house. Okay. So at 10 p.m., when her mother's like already in her night clothes, she stops by the house and she knows this is a Friday. She knows that Maria will be obviously off duty at 10 p.m. on a Friday night and in her own apartment. So Maria can't thwart her plans this time. And so she goes into the house under the excuse that she needs to borrow $10 from her mother, which her mother gives her. And she checks the windows and Maria had locked all the windows. She had like gone after like where Cindy had gone and was like, nope, lock, 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 lock after she left. And she got one unlocked again. But that between 10 and 3 a.m., you know, no one's going to check the windows. So horrible. Mm-hmm. So after that, they went to this mall where they were going to go see E.T., but the line was too long to buy tickets. So they decided to go to these two bars where David showed the bartenders how to mix like these complicated exotic drinks specifically so that the bartender would remember them and they'd have a stronger alibi. Mixology. Mixology. Okay, also, I love that they were, like, going to go casually CET, like, sick fucks. I know. I know. Horrible. Way to ruin ET, man. So, yeah, at 2.30 a.m., they left, and David drove, like, outside of where the Campbell's house lived in this— they lived in this very upscale area called Memorial of Houston, and he cleaned the 45. They ran through the final drill several times. They worked on their hand signals so no one in the house would hear a female voice. They triple-checked his weapon. They donned plastic gloves, and they entered the home through the living room den window at 3.30 a.m. exactly. 
Slowly and silently, the deadly duo crept through Cindy's childhood home and up the stairs to where her parents slept. Eyes adjusted now to the darkness, upon entry, David could make out the forms of Jim and Virginia lying on top of their bedsheets. Taking a deep breath, he gave Cindy the sign to flip the light switch on. She did so, and suddenly the room was bathed in light. Cindy apparently ran out of the door at this point as David stepped closer to the foot of the bed to improve his angle. And when he did this, he nearly tripped on a pile of blankets that was on the floor. Just like that, while he's kind of steadying himself, Jim Campbell rolled over on his side. Now, David had been scared of this because Cindy had said that there was a gun in the room, that Jim slept with a shotgun near him. So he had to get the jump on him before he could reach that shotgun. If only, if only. And later when they look at the scene of the crime, they realize that it was by his dresser and it was just a little too far out of reach. Ugh. I know. And this story could have been totally different. So he immediately shoots and he kind of panics and he was aiming for his head, but he caught him in the neck and then he turned and hit Virginia in the chest so that she couldn't get up and do anything. And then the third round, he went back and it did hit him in the head. It actually went through his eye and continued through his skull. Fourth bullet hit Virginia directly in the head. He later reported that the noise was deafening. A 45 is unbelievably loud. There is no sort of silencer on this. It's not a very large room. So he was actually like kind of shell-shocked. Yes, yeah, stunned by the sound yeah. himself. So he fired another round into each of the Campbell's chests and then he ran down the stairs and he found Cindy scrambling on the floor looking for something. So he screamed to Cindy, like, let's go, let's get out of here because he assumed that the neighbors would have heard this. Dude, your girl crazy. She's like scrambling around on the floor and he like, she's saying something, but he can't hear what it is at first because his ears are ringing and she has a, a ski mask kind of over her mouth. But as he's like literally hauling her to the getaway car, he heard her say, the glove, I dropped the glove. So she claims she's somehow this like plastic medical glove, you know, like one of those just fell off her, which doesn't happen. Yeah. You have to pry exactly. that Exactly. So Cindy cried all the way to this like murky swamp area where they were disposing of the field jackets, the face masks, and the murder weapon. They also pitched both pairs of boots into the water. Meanwhile, back at the Campbell's house, Maria was woken up by two frantic little boys banging at her apartment door. Oh, God. Oh, God. Through a mix of oh Spanish and English, the two little boys who were only seven and nine came screaming to Maria that their mama and papa had read all over them. It gets worse because unbeknownst to the killers, every Friday, Jim and Virginia had a sleepover with the boys. It was really cute. They would all watch a family movie, let the boys stay up late, and then pass out in sleeping bags on the master bedroom floor. So they were in there. That's what he did. That pile of blankets was actually one of Cindy's sons. Wow. So unfortunately, everything happened so fast. And of course, both Cindy and David were covered in head to toe black with full face masks that the boys were unable to see who the perpetrators were and 
couldn't really tell the police anything that was very helpful to the investigation. No, no, of course not. How? They're and they were boys. dead asleep, covered in blankets. And all of a sudden, there's just these shots going off and they were gone. And they just woke up and the lights are on. And the only parents they've ever really known are dead, you know? So Maria at first believed that the boys had simply had a bad dream. And she's like, no, we're going to go into the house and you'll see. Mama and Papa are going to be fine. But when she got into the house, things were weird. Like she could tell something had happened. And then yeah. she was too scared yeah. to go into their bedroom. But she called for them outside of their bedroom like, hey, hey, guys, are you okay? And they didn't respond. So she's like, oh, shit. So she called Jim's brother, who was also an attorney. His name was J.W., and she's like, you guys need to get here. I don't know what's going on. I don't want to call the police until I know what's going on. Can you please come over here? The kids say that something really bad happened to Jim in Virginia. So JW and his wife rushed over and immediately JW is like, something's wrong. He calls the police. And while he's calling the police, his wife actually went up into the bedroom to try to figure out what had gone wrong. And she was the one who like came back downstairs and was like, I'm so sorry there definitely deceased, you know? So the police arrived on the scene at 4.55 a.m. The call was most unusual as Memorial was really like this ritzy area of Houston and crime was very rare, especially murder. So immediately at the door, they found the crumpled plastic glove. And after confirming oh none of the EMTs had dropped it, they bagged it for evidence. In the bedroom, they found the bodies of the Campbells struck down in their bed. Both Virginia and Jim had been struck by a bullet three times. Blood sprayed the walls and the boys' sleeping bags and blankets lay crumpled on the floor. I mean, thank God the kids weren't in bed with them. Oh my God, yes. I know they could have been. So scary. And also the fact that Cindy would even have this hit go down in a home where she knows her children are. No, I know. I mean, it's... Utter it's disregard. Yeah. Even. Yeah, yeah. Definitely Maria wants to tell the police right away. She's like, it's Cindy. It's their bad daughter. It's for sure her. Like, go to her house right now and, and catch her, you know? So after disposing of the evidence, David and Cindy went to an after-hours party to help solidify their alibi. After which, they went to an all-night diner and had some food, and then they finally went home to scrub away fibers and gunpowder residue. Tensions were high between the couple because David speculated that Cindy had left evidence on purpose. Like we said, a plastic glove doesn't just fall off. So what was she doing? And Cindy was really paranoid and panicked, obviously. So David did end up getting a couple hours sleep while Cindy remained anxiously awake. And then the killer couple went to Cecilia's for a Saturday brunch. Ew. They went over to David's mother's house like mere hours after killing Cindy's parents. Oh, my God, I can't. These people are. While they were out, the police came to the fourplex and shared the bad news with Cindy's grandmother. Cindy's grandmother let them enter Cindy's apartment, but there was no evidence apparent to the blind eye. When Cindy and David went back to her apartment, her grandmother shared the, quote, news with Cindy and David. And Cindy broke down emotionally in an act that David later said should have won her an Oscar. Yeah, basically, then they go to JW's where the whole family is meeting about this tragedy. And then there's even, of course, a funeral. And everyone said that Cindy acted like she was genuinely upset. Like, we've had so many people on this that kind of give themselves away, either yeah. underacting or overacting. Yeah. And it seems like Cindy really yeah. nailed it. 
After the funeral, a newspaper article was released about the murders, and only then did David find out about the boys being in the bedroom when he killed the Campbells. The newspapers talked about the special arrangement for only Fridays. And so David confronted Cindy to see if she had known about the special Friday night sleepovers. And she was like, oh, yeah, I mean, I guess I did. He's like, uh, what? Like, he's not even thinking like we're thinking like, oh, that's a bad mom. He's thinking there was two potential witnesses in that room and you sent me in there anyway. I could have accidentally killed two innocent children. So he's like, what the fuck, Cindy? And she's like, I guess it slipped my mind. Okay, psycho, psycho. She clearly did not care even a little bit about her kids. Yeah. At all. The only thing that Cindy cared about was getting her hands on her inheritance as soon as humanly possible. Within days of the murders, Cindy had ransacked the Campbell's house of their TVs, VCR, exercise bicycle, and liquor cabinet. Wait, how? She just went in and took everything. To her point, I guess the sisters were like, hey, guys, like, you know, if there's something that's especially meaningful to you, like, you know, something of moms or dads that you especially want, we should all take one thing. Yeah. And Cindy just took everything. And she even said it. She's like, I'm just going to take everything that I could sell. Wow. Yeah. So she was dismayed to find out that the estate was only worth $1.5 million. The house itself was worth 450000 which with the conversion to 2021 money was actually close to $1.3 million. So that's not insubstantial. Come on. No, it's not at all. But if she has no intention of ever working a day in her life because she's terrible. I'm just not yeah. going to say anything. Yeah. <laughs> that was good biting of your tongue. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I definitely think that she was dismayed. She thought she was going to get like a cool mill from this herself, but she has to split this estate with her sisters, you know? So her uncle and her sisters are like, hey, the Houston real estate market is like kind of blowing up right now. It's like on the rise and everyone predicted that prices were only going to go up. So they're like to get the most bang for our buck and nobody's like super hard up right now. Let's not put it on the market for a couple months, you know? And Cindy flew into an absolute rage about how she wanted the house sold like yesterday. She wanted her money immediately. Like they couldn't tell her how she was going to spend her money, all this stuff. And her oldest sister, Michelle, was like, hey, we are just trying to get the most money that we can out of this estate because we have to take care of our grandmother who, you know, Jim and Virginia were taking care of and also your children whom Jim and Virginia were taking care of. And, you know, if you want to get your money and be a big shot, why don't you raise your own children? And so that was like Michelle saying something in frustration. She didn't like actually mean it. But Cindy. But also. But also it's true. It's kind of true. It's completely true. So in a rage, Cindy and David ended up kidnapping the boys. Like, she was like, fine, I fucking will. I'll start doing it today. And the little boys were being ripped out of this house while they're crying. So they're doubly traumatized at this point. Like, they describe the scene as David ripping the children out of the house while they clung to the doorframe. Yep. And it doesn't get any better. When one of the children refused to eat his meal in a diner that they went to, David West took him to the parking lot and beat the child. Oh, wow. Okay, so he's a child. Yeah, so he told... Cecilia, he was like, yeah, I'm getting like used to being this like stepdad thing. These kids have clearly never been disciplined in their life. And so he wouldn't 
eat this meal I bought him. So I was like, all you have to do is have five bites. But if you don't have five bites, I'm going to hit you for every bite you don't eat. And when the kid refused to eat, he said, I took him out to the parking lot and I gave him five good ass busters. Oh my God, these poor babies. (sighs) Poor children. After only a few days with their mother, the children started screaming to strangers, help us, we've been kidnapped. Yeah. Wow. So David couldn't take it anymore. And Cindy was absolutely unable and unwilling to deal with her children even a little bit. Like she would not do anything to comfort them. She wouldn't do anything to discipline them. She just was not engaging at all. So David was like, I can't do this anymore. And what do you want to do with these kids? Let's take them back to your sister or something. And she's like, screw my sister. I don't want her to have like the privilege of raising my children. So we're going to take them to an orphanage. She might be the worst person we've ever covered. Isn't that horrifying? That's one of the worst things that anyone has done. To purposely not give her children a happy home with a relative who's going to love them to spite that person. So they take these kids to this orphanage and the orphanage is like, no, we're not taking these children. They knew something was wrong. They're like, y'all like bring them to your relatives, do something. But we're, we know something's afoot and we're not taking these kids. And so in desperation, finally, Cindy called her sister and was like, yeah, we can't have the kids. Like, we're just going to drop them off with you again. Whoa. Oh, these poor kids have been through so, so much. How are you going to do that to the kids after... You traumatize them for life by murdering their parents in front of them. Wow. Yeah. So as soon as the kids were back in Michelle's custody, the cops were called and the boys were examined. And they did document that both the children had some bruises and like finger mark bruises like on their arms and stuff. But no charges were filed as far as child abuse goes. So the cops are investigating everyone, basically anyone who might have had bad business dealings with Jim Campbell. But the sisters and Maria, of course, are very convinced that Cindy is the responsible party. However, there's no real physical evidence. I guess that the glove didn't really turn up much. And their alibi was fairly decent. So they were at like one bar until like 2.30. And then they were at an after party starting at like four. They said that they like went home to have sex at some point in the middle. And everybody remembered seeing them on either side. So there's clearly time to commit this murder. But their story was mostly stacking up. Okay. Yeah. So the investigators keep plugging away trying to figure out this case, but there's not a lot for them to go on. And things aren't really going that well with Cindy and David. So we always say that there's two things that don't save marriages or relationships, which is threesomes or having more children. But apparently there's a third thing and that's committing murder together doesn't save a relationship. I think that's just common <laughs> yeah. sense. So yeah, now both of these idiots are broken up only weeks after the murder. And they both can't keep their mouths shut. First, David tells Wiki that he used his 45 to kill two people who were bothering him. And he didn't reveal that they were the Campbells, but he was like bragging that he had murdered them. And Cindy temporarily moved back in with Gwen, bringing the TV she had taken from her parents' house as a kind of peace offering because the last time she moved in had been so bad. But again, the entire arrangement is a disaster. Cindy was dirty. She refused to shower. She managed to drink the entire contents of the liquor cabinet in two days. 
This is a nightmare house guest. She would get wasted. She would make a mess. She would started like drinking by herself late at night. And then she would walk into Gwen's bedroom while she was sleeping and like sit on the side of the bed and try to get her to wake up and like talk with her. Yeah. Naturally, Gwen's husband hated this. And when Gwen tried to chastise Cindy and tell her she had to stop this, Cindy claimed that Gwen's husband had come on to her by whipping his dick out and demanding like she service him. Mm-hmm. This was something sure. that was categorically untrue, and Gwen didn't believe her for a second. And the final straw was when Gwen heard her teenage son yelling for help from his bedroom and found Cindy in his bed saying drunkenly, I don't want to be just another notch in your bedpost. That poor kid. He was like, Mom, get this weirdo out of my room. (laughs) Yeah, so of course, Gwen ripped her out of there. And then she's like, okay, I got to get her out. So she concocted this plan because she, she was like afraid of Cindy throwing a fit in her house. And so she was like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take her out to her favorite Mexican restaurant. Then I'm going to have her son and her husband pack up all of her belongings and bring them back to her apartment. The one she still had like in the fourplex with her grandmother and leave yeah. all of her stuff there. And then after we're done with dinner, I'm going to be like, okay, now I'm dropping you off and all your stuff is already there. Bye, Bye bitch. <laughs> so during dinner, Cindy confided in Gwen that she had had a mafioso boyfriend named Salino who had killed her parents in retribution for her childhood abuse and that she had been there when Salino killed them. Do you imagine? I mean, Gwen was terrified. So according to Gwen through author Jack Olson, here's how this confession went down. Salino felt sorry about the way mother and daddy treated me, Cindy went on. He wanted to cure me. He said if they were eliminated, I wouldn't have any more troubles and I'd have a lot of money. He said he was going to kill my parents to make me well. She went on in a weird Italian accent. I'm going to make you a well. I'm going to do this thing for you. This is for you, Cindy. They even like spell it out in the book, like phonetically. Oh my God. Gwen knew what the mafia did to people who knew too much. Cindy, she said, please just shut up. Cindy told her how she'd gone to her parents' house with Selena when everyone was asleep. She said that he'd known the floor plan better than she did. My God, Gwen thought. She's doing this whole number. Please, Cindy, she broke in. I don't want to know. I want to go home to my family and live a normal life. Don't do this to me. Cindy said they wore bulky men's clothing, men's shoes, and gloves, and covered their faces so her sons wouldn't recognize them. She said that Salino had known that the boys would be in the bedroom, but hadn't told her in advance. She leaned toward Gwen and said, do you think I would have done anything like that if I'd known my children were in there? Gwen warned herself, don't comment, and maybe she'll shut up. Then your house and your family will be safe. Cindy said she'd panicked when she saw the boys. This is how it happened, she said, looking straight at Gwen. I stood beside him with my children on the floor. I didn't look when he shot daddy. I didn't look when he shot mother, but I felt her body go up and down. Oh, Cindy, Gwen blurted out. How could you stand there while this was going on? Selino held a gun to my head. Her hands shook as she touched her temple. Jesus, Gwen thought. Don't show everybody in the restaurant. She was too exasperated to hold her tongue. Cindy, she said, you're telling me he was shooting your parents, but also holding a gun to your head? 
He can't point in both directions. Why didn't you holler, Good scream, girl. or run? Good girl. Mm-hmm. He would have killed me too. Tears flowed as she babbled about leaving a glove behind so the police would know she had been there. Gwen thought she meant a textured glove or a mitten. It made no sense. Fingerprints off a glove? She eyed the exit. Cindy, she said, reaching across and touching her friend's arm. Let's just stop, okay? So now you know, Cindy said, Selino and the mafia are going to kill me, and that's why I need a place to hide. So after dinner, yeah, like Gwen's like, let them stay at your house now. I'd be like, get the fuck out. Yeah, she's like, bye, bitch, like what she said. <laughs> Gwen dropped her off at her own apartment, and the two women at this point effectively go their own separate ways. Thank God. Yeah, so Gwen eventually does go to the police with this information, and the police hadn't released any information about the dropped glove to the public, so when they hear Gwen's account with that detail, they now are very interested in Cindy, and they believe that she was absolutely there. But, of course, they know that she was with David, not an imaginary mafioso. Yeah. So the investigators ask her to go back to Cindy wearing a wire, but Gwen absolutely refuses. She genuinely believed that there was a mafia connection, and she thought that she and her family would be killed if she cooperated. Yeah. She's terrified. So the detectives are like, well, you know, if you don't cooperate with us or you don't do this, then we can't help you. And she's like, are you going to put a detail on my family's home 24-7? And they were like, no. And she's like, then no, I am not doing this. Unreal. Yeah. I mean, it's like you have to believe that your crazy friend could get involved in something like this, even though she's also crazy, you know, like. Exactly. I mean, Gwen was very, very scared. And she had also witnessed all, all of this crazy behavior at her own home from Cindy that she doesn't put anything past her. So, yeah, at this point, there's nothing to go on and new cases start coming in and the police just kind of shelf the case and they start forgetting about it. So after 18 months with no arrests or new information, Cindy's sister, Betty Ann, and her husband hire a private detective firm to look into the murders. They make sure that the detective knows that Cindy is their number one suspect. By now, Cindy had hired attorneys to aggressively fight for her share of the estate. She was getting cash advances against her future inheritance to live on, and basically the only time her family saw her was when she was fighting for money or picking up a cash advance. Wow. So fucked. It's really fucked. Also, she was so heinous in negotiations. They talked about how they gave her a settlement of, they were like, we'll give you a settlement of $300,000 and you can stay owning the fourplex. The only condition is that you have to let the grandmother stay there. Okay. And she was like, no, I'm kicking that bitch out. And they were like, can you at least give her 90 days to find a new place to live? And she was like, no, no deal. I mean, (laughs) she's like doesn't care about her kids kicking her grandmother at the curb yeah wrong so yeah the the private she really is the private investigators got basically nowhere with cindy like she wouldn't answer the phone she wouldn't answer her door they couldn't get anyone close to her like she was very closed off so they decided to switch their focus to david west But how would they get him to crack? So if their theory was that he got involved in the murder to please a woman he was in love with, they figured that women must be his weakness. And since they'd been following Cindy around, they knew that David and Cindy were no longer an item. So they decided to see what a good-looking 23-year-old female rookie investigator could shake out of him. Love. Yes, they're going, they're going like the honeypot route here. 
So her name was Kim Paris, and she was something else. Her real name Kim, or undercover name? Her real name was Kim Paris. Wow. Okay. Her undercover name was Teresa Neal, which is so much more boring yeah. than <laughs> her real name. So yeah, she was tall, slender, with stunning blue eyes and a brunette shag-like 80s cut, very like Joan Jett. Okay. Kim had been in the military where she had been an air traffic controller, had a brief foray into topless dancing, and was now trying her hand at being a private investigator. So up until the Campbell case, she had mostly done stuff like when there's like an insurance case where some guy is saying he like broke his neck or his leg or his arm, and then they like get her to be on the side of the road saying she needs help changing her tire. And then the guy does it, even though he's supposedly injured and they get pictures of him, you know? Like, that was the type of stuff she was doing. Apparently, like, some rich woman in a divorce settlement or something was, like, in Esalon in, like, Big Sur. And she, like, flew out there and, like, seduced the woman or something. And, like, she was doing stuff like that. So she is, like, on this tip. And when they were discussing the case in the office, she's like, oh, I can get in there. I'm going to, like, get in there and buddy up to him. But the crazy thing was nobody really gave her any advice. They were just like get as close to him as possible and get as much information as you can. And nobody was like, here's how you do that. Here's some like pro tips. Like she was just this 23 year old, like on her own going into the field with a potentially psychotic killer. Yeah. All by herself. No wire, no support, you know? So she ends up going up to David's apartment building and she knocks on the door and his roommate answers. She's like, hey, are you Charlie? And the guy's like, no. And she's like, well, is Charlie home or will he be home later? And they're like, no, we have no Charlie here. And she's like, oh, my sister told me that I was supposed to meet Charlie here. Can I come in and use your phone so I can call my sister to tell her this is the wrong address? And the guy was like, yeah, because she was super cute. So she goes in and she like makes a fake call to her sister. And then she makes like kind of some small talk with this guy who's David West's roommate. And the guy's like, hey, you seem really cool. We're celebrating my friend's birthday at this bar down the way. His name's David West. Do you want to come? Amazing. And she's like, yeah, I'll totally come. And I mean, right away, David even said later that his attraction to her was immediate. Like, in fact, he got into a fight with like his roommate because his roommate's like, wait, she's my date. And he's like, no, not anymore. You know, it's my birthday. It's my birthday. She's my birthday present. And so they ended up talking all night and they were in this bar and David's like, yeah, like I really want to get into owning a bar and I have this ex-girlfriend who is about to come into some money and she's going to be my silent partner in the business. And Kim immediately noted that, of course, because she knew that they were trying to finalize the Campbell's estate. So obviously his ex-girlfriend was going to come into some money. So she starts cozying up to David and she's really good at it. I have to say for like, she's a newbie private investigator, but she's clearly a virtuoso about men because she manages to set up pretty good boundaries right away. She claims that she lives with her sister and her sister's like abusive husband who's this like crazy jealous guy who doesn't want men calling or being around the house. So she's like, I can take your phone number, but you can never call me. Like she's like spinning this whole web about why like she's not going to bed with him, why he can't come over to her house, you know, even though they're pursuing this alleged relationship. And slowly she starts to extract information out of him. He talks a little bit about Cindy, but he claims that her parents died in a car accident. 
Now, Cindy at this point is still occasionally getting tailed by investigators and she has nothing to do with David whatsoever by this point. It's like they're actually off for good around now. She has even remarried a Syrian waiter named Talal McClough at this point. So apologies to Talal. (laughs) Seriously. Yeah. So David is kind of wounded and lost. I think he found out about her remarriage. So it looks like their relationship is totally off. And he had obviously killed for her. And now she's just moved on. So it actually was the perfect emotional point for Kim to come in as Teresa and like knock him off his feet, you know? Yep. So a couple of months go by and though Kim is definitely on the right track and earning his trust, she's spending hours and hours with him and she's billing this to the PI agency. Now this is in the 80s and they're billing $50 an hour. Okay. Which is a ton. And she's also expensing all of their dates. Like they're going out to restaurants and bars and she's like picking up the tab like two thirds of the time. So she's billing this all to the firm. So eventually Betty Ann and her husband owe the private investigators $25,000. Sounds right. And they're not really that much closer to really getting the information that will lead to an arrest. So Betty Ann didn't seem to really mind, but her boss at the investigative firm is getting frustrated too because obviously she's billing all of this to the firm. So he's like, what are you doing? You're just like drinking with this guy and canoodling with him. And we don't know if you're having some weird relationship. Maybe you're in cahoots with him. You know, so she's getting a lot of shit and she's like, well, you haven't helped me at all navigate this case. And I am so close to getting him to crack. And her boss is like, cool. Okay, you know what we're going to do? We are going to introduce you to the cops on the case and you're going to network with them and they're going to provide you with like the support that you need because they wouldn't even at this point give her a wire or anything, the PI firm. Okay. So she goes to the cops and the original investigators on this case are like really sexist and rude to her. At least one of them was like right away where they're like, yeah, so what, you're boning this guy and you think you can get something out of him because you're sleeping with him. And she's like really offended. She's like, no, I'm a professional. I am not sleeping with this guy. Everything like I've gotten to earning his trust is like because of my personality and because I'm good at this not because I'm sleeping with this guy. Yeah. And so she basically demands that they take her seriously. And they're finally like, you know what? We'd love to close this case. We'll work with you. We'll see. But they didn't really have high hopes. So they counsel her. They have like the DA counsel her on how she needs to get this confession out of him. Because if she leads him or she talks over him, it's not going to stand up in court. So he needs to willingly admit this to her and talk about it without her saying anything, essentially. Okay. So they provide her with a wire, and the first night she goes out with David, and she is working the hell out of him. I mean, he had been telling her that he was falling in love with her, that he wanted a life with her, that he wanted to have kids with her. And of course, he's also frustrated that they've been dating for months and he's only gotten like a few little pecks on the lips here and there. Yep, 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 yep. And it was funny because that actually came up like on the wire. Like he's like, we've been dating for months and like you barely will kiss me and stuff. And she was like listening to it, knowing that the cops were listening. And she's like, yeah, take that asshole. He just said I haven't been sleeping with him, you know? Yeah, And so Kim is like, I don't know. I just feel like I can't trust you. I don't know why, like maybe I'm just a psychic, but I feel like there's this like big, deep, dark thing that you're keeping from me. And she is going in. She's like, I just can't have sex with you or like be open to a future if there's this big, dark secret between us. 
And like, you know, I'll love you no matter what, but like only if you're honest with me. And this just keeps going like all night. They have like dinner and drinks. They eventually go back to his apartment for a little while. Like, and his friends are there, like Wiki's having a party and she just keeps trying to reel him back in. And they just are fighting about this all night. And they're having this like intense, intense conversation. And they end up in her car at the end of the night. Like she's going home and he stops her and he's like, let's just talk in your car for a little while. And at this point, the surveillance guys were like, you did a really good job today. Like, just get out of there. Start again tomorrow. You're not going to get anywhere tonight. You guys have been talking in circles for hours, you know? And she's like, no, I just know. I just, she could tell that she was just on that precipice of getting him. And now she's like crying. She's like, I love you and I want to be with you, but I just can't trust you. Like, she is like going full on. And he's like, I'm sorry, there's just this like one thing I can't share with you. And she's like, fine, then I'm gone from your life forever. Just like get out of my car and leave. And I'd never want to see you again. And we're not going to be in a relationship at all. And he just stops her and he's like, wait, no, stop. Just look at me. Just look at me. And she's like, no, I don't even want to. I can't even. I'm too upset. And he's like, no, Teresa, look at me. Look at me. I killed both of her parents. Jackpot. Bam. He just says it. He comes out there. So the detectives in the surveillance van are like losing their minds. They're like, oh my God, did that just happen? And Kim, of course, is completely caught off guard. This is what she wanted. But she didn't actually think he was the killer. She thought that he had information about the killing and that that was his deep, dark secret. She had maybe not fallen for him, but she had grown to really like him. Okay. So this made her just immediately sick to her stomach for two reasons. One, realizing that somebody that you thought you knew and that you liked was a killer. Yeah. And number two, that she knows that his ass is grass. I mean, they're taping this. People are listening to this. Like she didn't realize how much she was going to be betraying him, you know? So according to Jack Olson's book, Cold Kill, here's how his confession on tape to her goes. He said that he'd planted the original idea by telling Cindy that she ought to kill her parents and later she'd begged him to do it. And she also offered me a lot of fucking money, he said. And I said, yeah. And the thing was that I made her stand there with me when I did it because I wasn't going to have her say, well, you did it. I didn't have the belly for it. I made her go in there with me and stand there right by the bed and I shot each of them three times. Kim began sounding as though she'd had it for the night, but West ran on. He told how the children had been asleep at the foot of the bed and how Cindy had run out the door before the shots were fired and how they had originally entered through a window. When he was finished ringing out every detail, he said pleadingly, there it is, blow by blow. Is that good enough for you? Do I trust you? You got my life in your hands now. Is that good enough? Is that what you wanted? In the van, one of the detectives said, the needle's in his arm. Everybody knew how Texas executed. West's voice resumed. I don't feel like I've even compromised myself morally. Frankly, they've just been executed is all. That's it. I didn't do anything wrong as far as I'm concerned. They heard Kim say, you be careful. It sounded as though she was saying goodnight. West said, well, you needed a commitment. You got your fucking commitment. Kim said she needed time to think. The response was a weak, I'm scared. Why, Kim asked. I never said that to anybody. Don't be afraid, she soothed him. Go to bed, rest easy, and sleep real tight, David. Oh, well, he said, his voice fading back to reality. Bye-bye, sweetheart. See you later. So sad. 
so sad. Yeah. And so Kim said later, she's on the Snapped episode, actually. She said that she basically drove away and had to pull over and vomit afterwards. Yeah. And then when she got home, there was one of the homicide detectives was waiting for her. And they're like, okay, we need you to go back in and get more information. No. And then get him to a place where we can arrest him safely because he also had told her that he had a gun on him and that the police would never take him alive. No. So, yeah, she's like, hell no. No, 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 no. I did everything you asked. This is insane. I'm not going to spend any more time with this guy. And so apparently one of the detectives was like, okay, well, I'm just going to leave you with this manila folder and you give me a call if you change your mind. And in the folder was a bunch of pictures from the crime scene of Jim and Virginia, bloody and dead. Oh, God. I mean, that's manipulative as fuck, but it worked. She was like, oh, no. Like she went from seeing him as her friend that she was betraying to a killer that she needed to bring to justice when she saw those pictures. So yeah, the next day she tells him she wants to go out again and they do get basically him saying more of like why he did it. And he talked about the horrific abuse that Cindy suffered and why he had to kill her parents and, you know, that he did it for love and he did it for what he thought was a a good moral reason. Yeah. And she knows that she needs to get him to this like gas station. So she's like, okay, I need to go get some cigarettes. And she is just terrified because she knew that he was usually armed. He kept it like underneath his like a jean leg kind of like he had like a holster down there. Okay. And she also knew that he said that he was never going to be taken alive. So I don't know if on this particular day he was armed. He might not have been. He wasn't scared at this point. He thought that this was going to work and he was going to be building a relationship with Teresa. And they take off and she finally like very nervously pulls into this gas station where she's supposed to take him to the rendezvous, obviously. And she jumps out of the car and she's like, I almost got hit by a, a squad car. It was how fast that they all pulled in after me getting out of the car. Wow. And they just swarmed him like a SWAT team and immediately pulled him out of the car, like handcuffed him so he couldn't do anything. And he was shocked. I mean, completely, completely shocked. He had no idea that Teresa wasn't, who she said she was, that she had told anybody or that anyone was on to him. I mean, he really, really thought that the two of them were falling in love, which is why he trusted her with that information. Yeah, of course. But also you cold-blooded killed two people. Yeah, I'd feel a lot worse for you if you weren't a murderer. Yeah. So yeah, at that point... Obviously, Kim feels sick to her stomach. And then they're like leaning even more on her. They're like, okay, now we need you to call Cindy. And she's like, I can't. What? I can't. They're like, do, do you, how about you guys do your job? <laughs> Go, how about, how you, about guys you guys do not your job? have a 23-year-old rookie PI do the entire police force's worth of work? So yeah, they tell her to call Cindy and say, hey, this is David's girlfriend. He's been arrested. He needs bail money. And I know that he owes you money for what he did for you. So if she says that, then they want Cindy to say something that will implicate her, <sighs> obviously. So she calls, but Cindy never answers. So 
like Kim's even doing this. She's trying. She called several times and they couldn't get Cindy on the phone. Despite all of that, despite they couldn't get any like hard evidence about Cindy, they obviously have this recorded statement now. So they end up arresting Cindy too, based on the taped confession. And both David and Cindy are facing capital murder charges at this point. Meanwhile, when the news about the undercover operation and subsequent arrest hit the media, Kim Paris becomes a sensation. She goes on Donahue. She's flown to LA to have a meeting about Deborah Winger playing her in a film. I mean, she is a star now. But she also has to prepare for trial. And the DA is going to have to defend how she got this confession, you know? Not to mention that the local news at this point uncovered the fact that she was briefly a topless dancer, which, ew, who cares, you know? Who cares? So there are a lot of people discrediting her as well. So it's this crazy time where she's like being lauded as a hero in some respects, but also people are tearing her down as they do to young women who are successful, you know? Yep. So David goes to trial first and the confession tapes are let in. So after the first day that the tapes are played, his attorneys see that the jury hates him and they beg him to take a plea deal at this point to save his life. Up until this point, he had refused to testify against his ex-lover, Cindy. But with the proverbial axe hanging over his head, David agreed to the plea deal because it was a death penalty case. So he took life imprisonment with the possibility of someday parole, not anytime soon, in exchange for testifying against Cynthia Campbell Ray. Good. So Cindy's trial starts and the prosecution endeavors to prove that not only was she present at the murders and could have stopped them if she wanted to, that it was indeed her lies and manipulation that caused their deaths completely. They contend that Cindy had never been raped, abused, or mistreated. Without her firing David West up, there would have never been a killing. Longtime employee Maria testified that she had spied Cindy unlocking windows and that Virginia had feared Cindy leading up to the murders. Sweet Maria, who had practically raised the kids herself. I mean, because both Jim and Virginia were, so Maria was the one raising the boys. She was so angry that she couldn't stop herself. When she stepped down from the stand and crossed by the defense table, she yelled, Eres malas. Eres malas, Cindy. Uh, Essentially, you're bad. And the courtroom erupted. It became this whole thing. They had to pull the jury on who heard it and who spoke or understood Spanish. And the defense even pushed for a mistrial based on this one statement from Maria. Wow. But thankfully, the motion was denied. Sisters Jamie and Michelle testified that the Campbell home had been very happy and denied Cindy's allegations of abuse. Michael Ray Sr., Cindy's first husband and the father of her two boys, testified that there was no way that Jim Campbell could have fathered Cindy's sons as they were both conceived away from Texas and Cindy's family. When asked if it was possible that Jim Campbell was his eldest son's father, Michael Ray said, only if he sent him by Western Union. Oh, my God. That got a good laugh from the gallery, apparently. The medical examiner said that based on the angle from which the bullets entered the bodies, there was no way that David could have acted alone. Basically, someone had to be on the other side of the room to turn the lights on. Gwen Sampson also testified to Cindy's erratic behavior and shared the story of Cindy's Mexican restaurant confession. 
The defense's story was that David was obsessively in love with Cindy and acted as a deranged vigilante due to the abuse Cindy suffered as a child. They suggested that Wiki Weinstein had accompanied David to the Campbell home and that Aww. he was the accomplice, not God, Cindy. throwing him under the bus now. Yeah. That's why, like, all of the information about what he told Wiki also came from Wiki, who was like, yeah, I kind of knew that he did something, but I didn't know who it was. I didn't know the details. And I gave him the gun. But other than that, I don't know, you know? Wow. A psychiatrist named Dr. Owens testified that Cindy demonstrated clear signs of being abused as a child and that David was a controlling sociopath. But he was kind of ripped apart in cross-examination, however, when he admitted he was not technically an expert in child abuse. He had never published in the field, nor when asked could he cite any academic papers that supported his studies. Where'd they find this guy? Some uh, Well, actually, he had a master's degree in rehabilitation. He worked with a prison population. He was not an expert in child abuse. So in their closing statements, Cindy's attorneys argued that the only evidence against Cindy was the word of a killer, a killer who had traded some words in order to save his own hide. Is it so surprising that a man would lie to save his own life? Which is a really good point. Yeah. So the jury was very conflicted. They found David generally believable, but found strong, reasonable doubt. After a week of deliberation, they were stuck and the jury was hung. The judge was forced to declare a mistrial. Oh, my God. So 10 out of the 12 jurors wanted to convict on murder, but there were two women who were holdouts for an acquittal. And it turned out later that one of the women had lied about her incarcerated brother. So in the voir dire process, when they questioned the jury, of course, they asked questions like, have you ever been incarcerated? Do you have any loved ones who are incarcerated? You yeah. know, how do you feel yep, about yep, the justice yep. system? And she had straight up lied and said that she nor anyone in her family had ever been incarcerated. This just happened a few episodes ago, too, where someone lied. Yep. Somebody lied where they have some sort of vendetta that they want to, you know, get across. So, yeah, this happened again. And the DA was so angry. He considered charging her with some crimes against justice. Ah. I forget what it was exactly because he was so mad about this. Yeah. But, yeah, Cindy was retried and this time with a new attorney. Cindy had a really, really, really hard time getting along with or keeping her attorneys. She went through several. And even though I think her previous trial attorneys did a really good job, I mean, they got her to a mistrial, you know. Yeah. She canned them and she hired a fiery young man named Pete Justin and her new trial began on March 10th, 1987. Kim Paris was by now a new mother and had a new boyfriend who would become her husband and testified at this trial for the prosecution. Though elated with her new baby, the notoriety hadn't paid off in the way Kim had hoped. She had actually been fired from her private investigator job. What? Yes. Well, they said, and this actually kind of makes sense, that she was an undercover agent and now she was so famous that she couldn't do any undercover work. Okay, that's fucked up. It's so fucked up that she did such a good job <laughs> that she had to be fired. Also, the she, Deborah they should Winger, have retired her. They should have given her like yeah, 
we're going to give you a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. And retire you because, oh, they must have gotten so much work and publicity from that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They should have given her like a cut of everything that came in because she was so famous. Bullshit. The Deborah Winger movie hadn't panned out either. However, there would be a made-for-TV movie in 1990 about the case, and it was called Love and Lies, starring Mayor Winningham as Kim and Peter Gallagher as David. Wow. Mm-hmm. Peter Gallagher looks really cute, too. He's so young. It's bizarre. However, at this point in time, Kim was just a new mom trying to help the prosecution put away Cindy Campbell Ray, and the jury just loved her. The tapes were let in, and despite her tactics, the jury found Kim brave and credible. This trial was pretty similar to the first one as far as witnesses and strategy goes, except Cindy and her attorney hated each other. Apparently, it got so bad that she was kicking and pinching him underneath the defense table. Wow. She's crazy. And he was getting so mad at her that he was starting to kick her back. Good. Yeah. Pete Justin's wife later said that she was almost jealous at how easily Cindy could provoke her husband. She's like... (laughs) Nothing gets under his skin. Something that this woman does, like, just really riles him up. So Pete was hoping for an acquittal, obviously, but another hung jury would be, in essence, just as good because after two hung juries, the state would not pursue a third trial. So they just had to create the same amount of reasonable doubt that had been so compelling to the original jurors. Unfortunately for Pete Justin and his client, Cynthia Campbell Ray, this jury saw things very differently. And after only deliberating for an hour and 45 minutes, they returned a guilty verdict. Finally. Jeez, Louise. Woo. So Cindy was sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole in the far off future, just like her ex-lover, David. As far as I could tell, David is still behind bars in a Texas correctional facility and sadly or not so sadly, depending on your perspective, Cynthia Campbell Ray passed away in prison on May 17th of this year, 2021, at the age of 65. Whoa. Recently. Very recently, yes. On Reddit, a user named LeftEmotion3215 said that they were her nurse in prison and that she had died from a gallbladder issue. The nurse said that she ended her days wheelchair-bound and wearing adult diapers and that while she could be lovely and had a beautiful singing voice, she was also vindictive and mean-spirited when angry. Yeah. Apparently, she did have an arrangement with a married man who sent her money. Her boys, who, by the way, were raised by J.W., did not speak to her, and she claimed to the day of her death that David acted alone. Whoa. Wild, right? Uh Uh-huh. So Kim Paris went on to work as a TV news reporter for the better part of the 90s and headed up a few different nonprofits before founding Apache Blaze, a glass pipe business. In 2017. (laughs) Whoa. Yep. So, yes, if you are in need of a bong or a weed pipe, you can buy one from Super P.I. Kim Paris. (laughs) And a little fun fact is that uh, Entertainment Weekly reviewed Love and Lies, the made-for-TV movie, in 1990 
and said that it did contain some clunky dialogue, including the following line, undercover doesn't mean you have to get under the covers. Who wrote it? But- who wrote this? Who wrote this? This is I don't know who wrote the movie, but this was an Entertainment Weekly review from 1990. But they said that Mayor Winningham was very good in her role as Kim Paris, and they ultimately gave the made-for-TV movie an A minus. A minus is not bad. Yeah, it's pretty good. So if you've seen Love and Lies, let us know, guys. Wow. Wow. What a story. Thank you again to Leah for recommending this one. That was wild. It was wild. Well, if you like this show, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review and and let us know that it's working for you. We'd love to hear from you guys. And it really touches our hearts every single time. In conclusion, if you think that you're being the white knight, you might want to verify your sources or you might end up being the dark knight. And I don't mean Batman. No, no. not Batman. No, not decidedly not. Also, once you're not allowed to be a PI anymore because you kicked some major ass, there's always bong making. Always bong making. She's very uh, fond of saying that it's all American made. I went to her Twitter and it was very intense. I'm literally going to check it out after we're done recording. Yeah, guys, Kim Paris, uh, ApacheBlaze.com for all of your bong needs. Made in America bong needs. Uh, And as always, guys, trust your gut when it comes to love so none of you beautiful souls ever gets murdered. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.